2. We're going to be looking at Acts 2, 32 to 42. Acts 2, 32 to 42. If you don't have a Bible, there should be white paperback Bibles at the edge of each bench. You can grab one of those. You can turn to what page? I'm not 100%. To page 531. You can turn to page 531, and that'll get you where you need to go. Acts 2. 2 is the chapter number. That's the big number. And then verses 30. Actually, it's not 32 to 42. It's 37 to 42. And those are the smaller numbers, the verse numbers that are in between the sentences. Acts 2, 37 to 42. This morning, we are going to celebrate a baptism. Yeah, and we're also going to spend the next 30 minutes or so looking at the practice of baptism here in Acts 2 and in various other uh, places in the New Testament, various other scriptures. Uh, We didn't actually do that on purpose as a sort of object lesson. The Lord and His providence just so ordered things that we would be able to talk about baptism and practice a baptism on the same Sunday, Uh, and very, very glad that we have the opportunity to do that. Uh, We've been in a series called Devoted, where we've been looking at this church in Acts 2, and we've been seeing that they were a local church devoted to what's called the means of grace. Uh, The means of grace, that just means the ordinary ways through which God works in the lives of his people, the ordinary ways through which God builds his church. Um, And and what we've seen is that they were a local church, that they they devoted themselves to these means of grace. They were a church devoted to the preaching and teaching of God's word. They were a church devoted to a shared life of fellowship together. They were a church devoted to the breaking of bread, which is Luke's title for the Lord's Supper. And they were a church devoted to this practice of corporate prayer together. These are the means of grace, the means through which God builds his church, the ordinary ways through which God uh, promises in his word to use to build his church. These are the means through which he makes us more like Jesus. These are, are, are the ordinary ways through which the spirit supernaturally works in our lives as followers of Christ. Now, among these corporate practices, these means of grace, I think Many of us are pretty used to talking about and and thinking that we should be devoted uh, to uh, the the preaching and teaching of God's word together. We should be devoted to God's word together. We should be devoted. We're probably pretty used to thinking we should be devoted to a shared life, living in community with one another. Uh, We're probably uh, pretty familiar with and pretty comfortable with the reality that we should be devoted to praying together. We should be devoted to prayer But unfortunately, I I think for many Christians within our tribe, so to speak, to talk about being devoted to baptism and the Lord's Supper, which are often together called the ordinances or or the sacraments, to talk about being devoted to them sort of strikes us as odd. And I think there's probably a number of reasons for this, and and I won't get into some of the more complex reasons, but among them would be, for, for one, we just don't really understand the purpose of them. We don't really understand what they are. What, what are they? What are these, these ordinances? Why are they important? Uh, what does it mean to be devoted to these ordinances? And so for the next two Sundays, we're going to dig into these ordinances or, or these sacraments. This week, we're going to spend our time considering baptism. And next week, we're going to spend our time considering the breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper. And this morning, we have a lot of ground to cover. So let's dig into Acts 237 to 42. If you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy word, let's listen with reverence and with joy because this is the voice of our God speaking to us. This is what the Spirit says to you, church. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. 
Father, we ask that you would bless the preaching, the reading, the preaching, and teaching of your word with the presence of your spirit. Would you make it effectual for our salvation and for our sanctification and for our growth in grace and holiness and, and for conforming us more and more to be more and more like Jesus, to be more and more lovely like Jesus is lovely. Lord, would you uh, be at work in our midst, open our eyes to behold Jesus in all of his beauty and splendor, open our ears to hear your voice and soften our hearts to receive the seed of the word. May the seed of the word not fall on, on a hardened path or thorny soil or rocky soil, but may it fall on fresh, fertile soil prepared by your spirit to bring about 30, 60, 100 fold for your glory, for your name's sake, and for the furthering of the fulfillment of your great commission. Father, would you let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our Lord, our rock, our redeemer. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You can have a seat. In a book called the Poisonwood Bible, uh, author Barbara Kingsolver tells the story of a Baptist missionary named Nathan Price. Uh, Nathan moves his entire family to the Belgian Congo to plant a church there. And uh, Nathan, like most Baptists, uh, he's kind of a simple man. Um, I can say that because I am a Baptist. Uh, particularly, he has trouble with kind of learning the language, uh, which could, of course, cause some issues if you're preaching and teaching and trying to tell people the good news of Jesus that has to be communicated through words. And at one point in time, he takes everyone who came out on a Sunday morning to the river and he starts telling them about baptism. And he starts calling them to begin to follow Jesus. And he starts to, he starts to call them to, to follow Jesus by being baptized. Well, little did he know when he's telling them this, he's telling them, come be baptized. He's telling them, be baptized because Jesus is precious. Jesus is precious and you should believe in him and follow him and be baptized in obedience to him. And, and little did he know that as he's telling them to do this in this particular river, uh, actually very, uh, a few people in the village had been eaten by crocodiles in that very river. And because Nathan doesn't know the language very well, instead of the word baptism, he's actually saying the word danger. Uh, he's telling them danger. He's pointing at the river. He's saying danger, danger. And not only that, but instead of telling them that Jesus is precious, he's actually telling them that Jesus is a poisonous plant that will give them a rash. And I can just imagine the looks on, uh, on the faces of the people as he's telling them to get into this crocodile-infested water while shouting danger at them and that Jesus will give them a rash. But, you know, I don't really have to use my imagination that much because as a minister, I've had a lot of conversations with people about following Jesus and about being baptized. And often, based on the looks that I see on people's faces, you'd think that I was asking them to get eaten by crocodiles. But as many of you know, at Veritas, we've been pretty consistent and persistent in calling those of you who believe in Jesus to be baptized. Um, and we're pretty consistent and persistent about it because not only will baptism not give you a rash, it, doesn't, it won't give you a rash, it shouldn't give you a rash at least. <laughs> baptism actually is, is a precious gift that God gives to all of his followers. Not only will you not get eaten by crocodiles by getting into the water, but you actually receive a precious gift, really a gift that keeps on giving all throughout your walk with Christ. And so we want to consider this this morning, what, what is the gift of baptism? The, the sort of big question that we're going to be asking this morning is, what is baptism? And this is something we all need to have a basic understanding of as Christians, and not just for Christians, but, but if you're not a Christian here this morning, baptism can help you understand Christianity. It's a, it's a picture, a visible illustration of what we believe and hope in as Christians. It's, a, it's the message that we Christians believe in and literally made visible. And so what we'll see this morning in the text that we just read and, and a few other passages that we'll be looking at is that baptism is a commandment of Christ signifying our salvation and a means of God's assuring true Christians a church adding a member and a believer announcing to the world that they are a Christian. 
And after walking through that quickly, we'll briefly try to answer the question, how can we be devoted to baptism? I know that's a lot. It's a lot uh, that, that, that we need to get through, so we won't be able to dig into each and every single point uh, in, in the sermon adequately, but my hope is to kind of touch on baptism a little more widely this morning to try to answer the numerous questions that I've heard from you guys, many of you guys, in the last year or so, uh, many of the questions that you've asked about baptism, and some uh, of what we might discuss might raise some more questions in your mind. If you have a few more questions, if you have any questions whatsoever, we're actually going to meet in the gym afterward for just a little uh, short Q&A, um, just for a few moments. I'll be in there. There's going to be seating there. If you have any questions or if you just want to kind of come and discuss this and, and, and further, um, further discuss this, I'd invite you into the gym. The gym is... Uh, behind, I don't even know how to describe it. Just go out to the lobby. There's these double doors back in this area and you can go into the gym and we'll chop it up a little bit about baptism and interact and engage. So please uh, go in there if you have any more questions. But for now, let's dig into this question. What is baptism? What is baptism? Now, that's an incredibly difficult question to answer in one single sermon. Reason being, baptism is a lot of things. Uh, you're probably familiar with Swiss Army knives. Uh, you know, it's a singular tool that has multiple uses and tools and, and benefits and purposes. Uh, on a Swiss Army knife, you have a knife blade, right? You have a little, a little knife blade, a saw blade, a can opener. Uh, you have a, uh, a, a saw blade, a screwdriver, one of those little things that's kind of like, it is like a little twirly thing that you use to drill down something. I don't know what it's called. Uh, corkscrew, that you have one of those. Uh, you have all this and much, much more in a Swiss army knife, in this little tool called a Swiss army knife. God bless the Swiss. Well, baptism is kind of like that. Uh, it's one single act, one single ordinance, but it has multiple purposes and, and uses and benefits. It's truly an ingenious idea given to us from the mind of God. I feel like in my Christian walk, I'm just continuing to learn about the depth and the riches of the wisdom of God and giving us this gift of baptism. It's a beautiful thing. But it also creates a bit of a challenge when answering a question, what is it? Thankfully, though, baptism is not just a deep and wise and multi-purpose practice with a number of beautiful benefits. It's also very simple and ordinary practice as well. It's a, it's a kind of practice that a new believer can understand uh, and, and, and truly appreciate and benefit from, but also continue to grow in appreciation for and look at and wonder as they grow and learn more throughout their Christian life. You could say that baptism is simple enough that a child could understand it, but it's also deep enough that it confounds the minds of the most brilliant theologians. The word baptism is a word that simply means immersion, to be immersed, to be dipped, to be covered, to be placed in something. And particularly the, the practice of baptism that we're looking at this morning means to be immersed in water. It's the sacred rite ordained by Jesus Christ himself that he gave to local churches to practice until he returns. And it's, if you've seen it happen, it's rather peculiar, isn't it? It's rather a peculiar thing that we do. We, we dunk people and we speak the name of the triune God over them. Uh, and it's not only peculiar, it's also kind of inconvenient. Uh, I mean, we had to like fill this thing up this morning and drive this thing over here in a big truck. And, uh, and, and you know, if for churches that don't practice it in a tank like this, you have to schedule a time for everyone to get together to go to a river or a pool or something like that. Uh, the person being baptized has to get wet in front of everyone and, and be in everybody's, uh, it, it be in the eye of everyone in the room. It's, it's, it's sort of inconvenient. It's, it's sort of uh, it's sort of peculiar. And not only that, in some cases, it can be downright dangerous to be baptized. Uh, in certain places in the world, for someone to be baptized means, possibly could mean estrangement from their family, or it could mean them being persecuted for faith, or even, or even killed in persecution because of what they believe. But still, Christians everywhere continue to practice baptism. We, we try to, we continue this peculiar, this inconvenient, this sometimes dangerous practice. Why do we do that? Well, first of all, it's a commandment. Baptism is a commandment. This is not something reserved for a few fanatical followers of Jesus. It's not an addendum for those who are really serious about the Christian faith. Baptism is a core part of our faith because Christ explicitly commanded it. It's, it's a command of the risen Christ for all of his followers. Notice in verse 37 of Acts 2 here, the crowd of thousands gathered at this event we call Pentecost. They just heard the gospel sermon that Peter preached. And uh, we won't go back and, and read all of that like we did for 
uh, a couple Sundays now. Um, but, but upon hearing this good news, Peter's sermon, upon hearing the gospel, the good news of Christ's life and death and resurrection, the crowd was convicted of their sin. And, and they wanted to follow Jesus. And so they asked, brothers, what shall we do? What should we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every single one of you. Why did Peter tell them to do that? Why did Peter call them to this peculiar, inconvenient, sometimes even possibly dangerous act? Because Christ commanded it. Literally 10 days earlier, Jesus gave the apostles the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 to 20. You can turn there really quick. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. This is what we call the Great Commission. Christ commissioning his church and calling us to these particular practices wherein he is glorified. And this is what he says. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. The commandment there is to make disciples, make disciples, to make followers of Jesus. That's what that means. And the means of obeying the command are first to baptize them And secondly, to teach them to obey all that Christ commanded. Very literally, the first thing we are to observe in obedience to Christ is to be baptized. And so when they asked Peter, what shall we do? Peter didn't have to think about it, really. It's it's fresh in his mind. Just immediately, he went to, to what Jesus, he heard Jesus say with his own ears just 10 days earlier. And so they asked Peter, what should we do? And he says, repent and be baptized. Now, the word repent there is a word that just literally means turn around, to to make an about turn. To repent means to stop going in the way that you're going and to make an about turn. So to follow Jesus, he's saying you can't continue to go on the way that you're going. You can't continue to go on the way that you're going with just adding a few good morals to your life. Christianity is not behavior modification or, or mere moralism. Christianity is a complete transformation. To repent means to be brought face to face with the reality that you have sinned against a holy and beautiful God and that you deserve his wrath and his judgment. But that Christ came and he lived the life that you should have lived and died the death that you deserve to die and that he he was raised to new life again so that you could be completely and totally forgiven for all of your sin so that you'd be filled with God's spirit who empowers you to live a new life, striving to love and glorify God. That's that's what repentance means. And the first act that we're called to, once we've repented, the first act that we're called to, once we've turned around, is to be baptized. And truly, this getting wet is one of the easiest commands you'll obey in the Christian life. It only gets harder from there. In fact, you know, Peter, he doesn't even really separate repentance and baptism here. Uh, They're they're definitely to be distinguished, but they're not to be separated. The two are so closely connected in his mind that there's no question that if you have truly repented and trusted in Christ, that you will want to obey his commandment to be baptized. Baptism, as as Peter's indicating here, is the culmination of a person's conversion to Christ. Not that we should ever baptize someone in hopes of them being converted to Christ, but uh, but, but simply we baptize people who have follow, started to follow Jesus and who have repented of their sin. But, but it would be utterly foreign to Peter for someone to repent and start to follow Jesus and not be baptized. Not be baptized. Be, because Jesus commanded it as the first thing we ought to do once we begin to follow Jesus. But now it's not just a commandment. Um, often churches and pastors in our particular tradition will emphasize that baptism is a commandment, and it is, and and we shouldn't make light of that. But so often we try to explain baptism as just like, it's just this commandment and nothing really significant happens here. It's just this, this, we're kind of embarrassed about it. It's just this thing we have to do that Jesus told us to do, and I don't know, we, we have to do it, but it doesn't really matter all that much. But that couldn't be further from the truth. Baptism is not just a commandment, it's also a sign and symbol. Baptism is signifying something to us when we see it take place. Uh, some of you guys know how little I think of drama ministries, you know, ministries that put on plays and dances that have a special message. But this is one drama ministry I think we all can get behind, the drama ministry of baptism. Baptism is a picture, it's a drama, signed and a symbol of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a unique act, along with the Lord's Supper, in which we literally can get to see the gospel. We get to see the gospel with our eyes. Peter says in verse 238, repent 
and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, that has sometimes been understood by Christians to mean that the result of baptism is the forgiveness of sins. They understand, they, many have, have understood that word uh, for as um, being baptized results in you being forgiven of your sins. Be baptized so that you can have the forgiveness of your sins. But that's not what Peter is communicating here. The blood of Jesus and the blood of Jesus, let me be very, very clear. The blood of Jesus and the blood of Jesus alone cleanses you of your sin and purchases the forgiveness of your sins. We sang about that earlier. Only your blood is enough to cover my sin. Only your blood, Jesus. Now, 1 John 1.7 tells us that the blood of Christ cleanses us of all sin. It's only the blood of Jesus that does this. Baptism is not this work we do, this, this thing that we do in order to give God something in exchange for salvation and forgiveness he offers in Christ. It's, it's, utterly, it's an utterly and completely free gift from Jesus received by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So baptism is not something that we do in order to offer something to God in order to earn forgiveness. That's not what is happening here. Rather, what Peter's saying here is that uh, baptism, to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, he's saying that baptism, uh, that the forgiveness of sins is the cause of baptism. Uh, for the forgiveness of sins is the cause of baptism. Literally, be baptized because of the forgiveness of sins. Uh, you could think of one of those old uh, wanted posters, you know, in like a little western town posted on the sheriff's door. Uh, it says, Johnny Outlaw, wanted for murder, right? And they're not, the sheriff is not saying, hey, we want Johnny Outlaw to come in here so that he can commit a murder for us. They're saying, Hey, we want Johnny Outlaw because he had already committed murder. We want him because he has already committed murder. In the same way, Peter is saying that you should be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. You are forgiven, therefore you should be baptized because of that reality. Because that's literally what baptism is signifying to us. It's a physical act that demonstrates the spiritual reality that a person has been forgiven of their sins. The complete immersion of someone into water vividly portrays to us this, this washing, this cleansing, this pardon and forgiveness of sins that's taken place in someone's life. Just as a person's body is washed clean in baptism, just as a person's body is, is, gets its filth and dirt removed, uh, the complete immersion into water vividly portrays that to us. It gives us a tangible reality, a tangible picture of the reality that a person's been baptized, that they have been utterly, totally washed of their sins through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And have, they've emerged forgiven of their sin because of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Romans 6.3 says this, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ has been raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk and newness of life. That's what baptism is picturing for us, is dramatizing for us, is, is a sign and a symbol of. And in this signifying and dramatizing the forgiveness of sins that we receive in Christ and the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we also receive great assurance, don't we? Baptism is a commandment, it's a sign and symbol, and it's also God's act of giving assurance to true Christians. So God's work in baptism to give us assurance of his forgiveness and his great love for us. I love how Luther answered someone one time when they asked him the question, how do you know that you're a Christian? He just answered, he said, because I've been baptized. Now, we need to be careful here because um, baptism should never be used to give assurance to those who are not walking in repentance as Christians. If you're not following Jesus in repentance, you have no reason to have assurance of your forgiveness and salvation in Christ, no matter whether you've been baptized or not. Baptism doesn't create or confer forgiveness. Only the blood of Jesus by being born again by the Holy Spirit gives us those gifts. But, but for those who have received that gift, for those who have been forgiven and have been born again by the Holy Spirit, baptism is a gift from God that gives you assurance of that great salvation that's been accomplished by Christ and Christ alone. Again, Take a look at Peter's words in verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So when someone is baptized, they're baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Peter doesn't say that to contradict what Jesus told us uh, about being baptized over in the Great Commission. We're still supposed to say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit when someone is baptized. But what Peter's saying here is that when someone is baptized, they're being identified with and by Jesus Christ. All those who have repented and trusted in Christ have been immersed into him. We've been made one with him. And as we've been made one with him, we've been cleansed and forgiven for all of our sin and received newness of life. And when we see and feel the waters of baptism, the Spirit allows us, he, he uses that to allow us to understand more concretely that the blood of Christ has removed all the filth of our souls just as water washes dirt from our bodies. Baptism is a help to our faith. It strengthens our faith and gives us peace in our conscience. It, it assures all those who truly have faith in Christ that we are clean before God's judgment seat. This is what the Apostle Peter is communicating in 1 Peter 3.21. He says, Baptism now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, the act of baptism itself doesn't save as if you could be saved just by getting dirt washed off of your body. But it does indeed give you a clean conscience before God. It gives you assurance and peace. Baptism visibly and tangibly declares to you that you have fellowship with Jesus, that you're a partaker in his death and resurrection, that you've been cleansed from sin and, and guilt by the work of Jesus and the power of the Spirit, and that you've been a, set apart from the world for his sake and for the sake of his mission. All that is done outwardly with water in order to give assurance to true Christians that the, that the Spirit has done this inwardly by his grace. Sometimes it's hard to believe when things are done inwardly by his grace. It's hard to really understand and grasp that, but baptism allows us, it's a practice that allows us to grasp what has taken place spiritually and invisibly. It's to give us assurance that this promise is for us and for all that God calls to himself. So baptism is God's act of giving assurance to true believers. But now obviously, God is not the one that physically does the act of baptizing. Uh, one and obviously, you can't just baptize yourself. That's not a thing. Uh, so who's supposed to physically do this act of baptism? Well, we see here in Acts 2 that baptism is not just a commandment, not just a sign, not just God's act of giving assurance. It's also a church's act of adding a new member. Uh, Acts 2, 40 and 41. And with many other words, Peter bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So they didn't just baptize folks and send them on their way. Uh, when these new Christians were baptized, they were, be, they were being added to the fellowship of this local church in Jerusalem. Uh, you've got to understand, baptism in Acts 2, it's nothing new. It's nothing new to these people who were seeing these things take place. Uh, the significance of its meaning was certainly new for many of them, but, but um, the, the practice itself was nothing new. There were pools all over Jerusalem surrounding the temple uh, for the purpose of baptism. Uh, people would be immersed in these pools before entering in, into a fast or, or before entering into the temple. It was a symbol and a ritual of someone being purified before entering into the presence of God. And not only that, it was for Gentiles at that time who wanted to become part of Israel, wanted to become part of the covenant people of God. All Gentiles, that is, Gentiles are non-Jews, all Gentiles who wanted to convert to Judaism, amongst a few other things, had to be baptized in water. It's how they joined the covenant people of God. And so for Luke, of course, he would mention baptism and those, those being baptized, being added to the church in the same breath because that's literally one of the things that takes place when someone is baptized. Baptism is the God-ordained means of a person being visibly separated from the world and joined to a church. Uh, Peter says, save yourselves from this crooked generation. He's saying, separate yourself from this corrupt world that you're presently associated with and be added to the people, to the kingdom of God. 
By their baptism, these, these new converts were being set apart with the people of God. They were being added to this local church in Jerusalem. Now today, unfortunately, much of the time in Christian circles, baptism and church membership are treated as, as separate issues. Um, one time I was at this evangelistic event in, in East Dayton here with uh, another guy in our church, and uh, they were doing baptisms, um, which they shouldn't have been doing because it was an event program, not uh, a local church family. That's not the job of event programs. Uh, but one guy said to the crowd, he, he said, we're, we're not inviting you to be baptized into a church. We're inviting you to be baptized into a relationship with Jesus. And that may sound really pious and good, but Peter and the apostles seemed to disagree. They seemed to believe that having a relationship with Jesus meant having a relationship with his people. They, they seem to think that when you swear allegiance to the kingdom of God in baptism, that you are swearing allegiance to the people of the kingdom of God. That when you become a friend of the groom, you become a friend of the bride. That when you follow the shepherd, you do so with the flock. You, do, you follow the shepherd with the flock that's under his care. You can't separate the two. You can't separate Jesus and his people. They, they seem to believe that to be baptized meant that a church, that a church is marking you off from the world and that you're being set apart with God's people for God's mission. And baptism really isn't even what gives people a relationship with Jesus in the first place. By faith in Jesus and faith in Jesus alone does someone have a relationship with Jesus. So churches and Christians don't, through baptism, give someone a relationship with Jesus. And when someone begins to follow Jesus, they're, they're added to the universal church, what we often call the universal church or the spiritual church or the invisible church. Those are all kind of terms used to talk about this. The church universal, the church in all times, in all places, everywhere, uh, and in all times and places. That's, that's the universal church. Local churches and Christians don't have the ability or the authority to give that gift to someone. Local churches can't add someone to the universal church. Rather, local churches are charged by God to simply recognize when that's taken place in someone's life and to baptize them. And when a local church baptizes someone, they're adding them to the tangible, the visible, the, visible, the, the local body of Christ. Does that make sense? You can say yes. <laughs> so at the moment that these new converts in Acts 2 repented, they were added to the spiritual body of Christ. But only through baptism were they added to the physical, the local, the visible body of Christ. They were being received. By baptism, they were being received into the fellowship, into the care, the accountability of that local church. And they received the Lord's Supper and shared life with other Christians who were devoted to these same practices together. In baptism, we take that invisible reality that someone is a part of the church universal because they've trusted in Jesus, and we visibly make them a part of a church Locally, baptism is an act of a church adding a new member. And not only that, but lastly, baptism is an individual's act of announcing to the world that they're a Christian. And Peter expected all of those who wanted to follow Jesus here in Acts 2 to go to one of those public pools in Jerusalem and to be baptized in public, publicly announcing that Jesus Christ is the Lord of their life, that they repent of their sin, that they found salvation in the crucified and risen Lord this wasn't a private affair. Uh, you know, th this wasn't a, a private or secret ceremony. This was a public demonstration of repentance and a public confession of faith in Jesus. And this is one reason why we don't baptize babies. The order here in Acts 2.37 is repent and be baptized, not be baptized and then repent sometime later on when it makes sense. Baptism is only for those who have repented and begun to follow Jesus. Baptism is the means of us going public with the reality that we have repented and followed Jesus. Errol Hulse once said, baptism is a testimony to the world. Their gaze is not to be discouraged. Our Lord was baptized in public. The baptisms at Pentecost were not in secret. Baptism is a testimony to a new life. You know, on one very, very hot summer day, in July 16, 2011, Amy Ruth Strom and I, we said our, our marital vows to one another. 
uh, publicly. We, we said our marital vows before God and before the minister there and before our wedding party and before all of our family and friends who were present there for the wedding gathered at Dayton, in Dayton, Ohio, top of the market, East 2nd Street. And, and there she accepted a ring from me and she took my last name. Her name changed from Amy Ruth Strom to Amy Ruth Green. She accepted my last name. And similarly, those who have entered into a covenant relationship with Jesus publicly take on his name at baptism and receive the public symbol, not unlike a wedding ring, they receive a public symbol, the public symbol of that covenant relationship, baptism. Baptism openly marks you as someone who belongs to Jesus, who follows Jesus, who will spend eternity with Jesus. So baptism is a commandment of Christ, signifying our salvation and a means of God's assuring true Christians, a church adding a member and an individual announcing to the world that they're a Christian. It's not what saves you. It's not, it's not magical. There's no power in the water. It's just ordinary water, but it's enormously important and requires our devotion and our attention as the people of God. And so in light of all this, how can we, as God's redeemed people, be devoted to baptism? And we'll try to rush through this really quickly. Number one, if you're a Christian and haven't been baptized, you should be baptized. I hope that's clear. A, a question Christians often ask is, uh, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? And that's a good question. It's basically asking, are you a Christian? But another really, really good question to ask is, do you have a public relationship with Jesus? Which is basically asking, have you been baptized? Have you followed Jesus into the waters of baptism and publicly announced yourself as a Christian? Because if you're a Christian, you've not been baptized, you are, you, you are disobeying. You, if you're not pursuing baptism, I should say, you are disobeying a commandment of Christ. You're missing out on a God-ordained means of giving you assurance. You're missing out on being added to a church. And you're missing out on, on a wonderful evangelistic opportunity of announcing to the world that you are a follower of Jesus. So for your own sake, for your own comfort and assurance, be baptized. For, for a church's sake, it doesn't have to be this one, but for a church's sake, so that you can be added to a church wherein you use your gifts to serve and build up the body of Christ, you should be baptized. Not just for a church's sake, but, but for the world's sake, for, for the sake of the world, so that your unbelieving friends and family can know where you stand as a follower of Jesus and what you believe in, be baptized. And not only that, but for Christ's sake, because he commanded it, be baptized. Because he ordained it, because he commanded it, I can tell you, you should be baptized. I can tell you that with the authority of the word of God. You should be baptized. Number two, if you're a baptized Christian, but not a member of a church, you should join a church. Remember, baptism is the means through which someone is added to a local fellowship of believers. I know that much of the time today, people are baptized without being added to a church. And if that's happening in your life, that, that doesn't mean you need to be rebaptized. That's okay. It simply means that now that you've been baptized, you need to go through the process of joining a church. Again, it doesn't have to be this one. But it needs to be a church somewhere. It needs to be a church where there's accountability and oversight and care and the preaching of God's word. It needs to be a church like we see here in Acts 2, 41 to 42, where Christians are devoted to Bible teaching and fellowship and the Lord's Supper and prayer together. And number three, if you've been baptized, you should attend when others are baptized. Um, we always try to give our members notice beforehand whenever someone's being baptized, like Andy is being baptized this morning, uh, because every member is called to be involved when we receive a new member into our local expression of God's family. Uh, Donald Whitney makes this point well. He asks a question, what if you were married and became a new member of a family but many of your new family members didn't come to the wedding. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it trouble you if they didn't come and welcome you into the family because they were just too busy that day or because they had to travel the next morning? They're, they were just really tired. They, they couldn't make it out for those reasons. So by being baptized, or by being present when someone is baptized, rather, we're expressing our love and our commitment and our acceptance of them as they enter into our expression of God's family. Be present when others are baptized. And, and this is actually another good reason why you should show up when others are baptized. If you have been baptized, 
you should remember your own baptism often. You should remember your own baptism often. Baptism is not just this thing that took place a long time ago, but now you can just forget about it. No, when you see someone being baptized, you should remember your own baptism. And not only when you see someone being baptized, but when you, every week, when you come up and receive the Lord's Supper, you should remember your own baptism. And, and you should reflect on it regularly. You should reflect on it regularly. And, and th- this, this, uh, this assurance of salvation that we receive in baptism, that doesn't just take place when you're baptized. It should continue to give you assurance of your salvation. Uh, it should continue to give you assurance and peace and rest in your conscience. I, I love the, the poetry of George Herbert. He was a 17th century poet from England. And I came across this poem from him several months ago. And it's come up in my mind several times since. This is what he wrote. As one that sees a dark and shady grove, stays not but looks beyond it to the sky. So when I view my sins, mine eyes remove, more backward still into that water fly. In other words, when you're sensing condemnation, when you're being accused by Satan, look back to your baptism. Remember that you've had the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit spoken over you. You belong to the triune God. Remember what you saw and, and what you felt, what you heard, and what was signified in your baptism, that your sins are no longer counted toward you, but that you're covered in the righteousness of Jesus. And because Jesus lived and died and rose again for you, you are saved, you are forgiven and pardoned for all of your sin. All of your sins, past, present, and future, even the ones that bother you, bother your conscience and accuse you and disturb your peace, if you trust in Christ, they've been washed away in the flood of his grace and mercy. And now when the Father looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. He doesn't see your mess. He doesn't see your filth. He, he sees the righteousness of his son, which means that his face toward you is the same as his face toward his son, which you can get a, a, a clear picture of actually in Matthew 3, 13 to 17. This is Jesus' own baptism. Jesus himself was baptized. And in this beautiful text, Jesus comes to John the baptizer to be baptized. And, and, he, and after he comes up out of the water, the most beautiful thing happens. There's a voice from heaven. It's, it's God the Father speaking over the Son, and the Spirit descends on the Son. And God the Father says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. My soul is well pleased with him. And if you're in Christ, he says the same thing over you. He says, you are my beloved son or my beloved daughter. My soul is well pleased with you because you're covered in my son. You're covered in his righteousness. You are adopted into the family and given the sonship of Jesus. That's what's declared over you and you're baptized, that you're covered in Christ, that his righteousness, his sonship is yours because you've been made one with him. So you can rest assured that you've been reconciled to God, that you're his beloved son or daughter. That's what your baptism declared and signified in order to give you assurance and to admonish you to continue and persevere in following Jesus who lived and died and rose for you. In a few minutes, we're going to get to see a baptism. Uh, Andy Interline is being added to the Veritas family today and she's announcing to the world that she's a follower of Jesus by being baptized and we'll do this after we receive the Lord's Supper together and after we sing the communion hymn. And I just want to encourage you, as you watch, be assured, be encouraged. Remember your own baptism. Remember that by grace through faith, you have been washed clean by the blood of Jesus. And believe that the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ is sufficient for you. And this is something we actually like to bring all of the kids in for uh, so that they can see the baptism and see this visible demonstration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you would, after communion, uh, if you would go and get your children uh, from the class, uh, we're, we're going to bring all the kids and we'd like to bring all of the, the volunteers working in family ministry this morning in so that we can receive Andy into our church family all together. And so if you would, after communion, immediately go and retrieve your children, that would be wonderful. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for what baptism signifies to us. And we thank you 
that the message that it declares to us, the message that Christ lived and died and rose again and that all who believe in him are forgiven for all of their sins and justified in your sight is true. We thank you that that message is true. As, sure, as surely as Jesus is alive, that message is true. And we ask, Lord, that you would give your people assurance of that this morning. And that you would call those who haven't been baptized, as they see this taking place this morning, call them to repentance. Call them to follow Jesus into the waters of baptism. And Lord, we ask uh, that ultimately you would be glorified this morning through uh, our receiving of the supper and through this practice of baptism. We ask, Lord, that, that you would make, that you would make these, these means effectual for our sanctification and growth and holiness. We ask, Lord, that, that you would help us uh, to feast on Jesus by faith this morning, to enjoy him, to see him, to taste and see that he is good. Lord, and, and to be fed by him and nourished by him and strengthened by him for the sake of your great commission, for the sake of your kingdom. Lord, would you be at work in Jesus' name, amen. Hear the words of the institution of the Lord's Supper. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took a loaf of bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took a cup, and he said, this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for many. Take and drink as often as you do in remembrance of me, for as often as you drink this bread and drink this cup, eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. This meal, we come to this meal as a sign and seal of our communion with Christ and with one another this morning. As we partake of this meal together, God confirms the promised benefits of the cross, the promised benefits of pardon, reconciliation, eternal life, forgiveness, and eternal life, that all of these abound to us from Jesus. And we also in turn swear our allegiance to Christ and his kingdom and anticipate his return. Here we commune with Jesus and with one another by faith. Here we're renewed and refreshed. We also see here in, in scripture a warning. Paul warns in 1 Corinthians 11 that we're not to participate in an unworthy manner in the Lord's Supper. Therefore he exhorts us, he says, let a person examine themselves then and so eat of bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Therefore, if you're not a follower of Jesus and you've not professed faith in Jesus by being baptized, or if you're a Christian that's not walking in repentance this morning, uh, we hope you feel welcomed and loved and served here by this church family. But this is the one thing we ask you not to participate in. This is a meal for Christians who truly believe that Christ lived and died and rose again and who personally appropriate those historical realities. Uh, rather than coming up, I, I, I just invite you to first begin to follow Jesus and to publicly announce that you follow Jesus by being baptized. Come speak to myself or someone else about baptism this morning. And uh, for, for now, I just simply invite you to remain among us. God, ask God to speak to you. Pray to him and ask him to speak to you through what's taking place here and ask him, uh, if, ask him if he would forgive you and invite him into your life. Uh, if you are a sincere follower of Jesus, though, who has been baptized, I invite you to partake of this covenant meal with us. This is not Veritas' table, uh, and we don't treat it as such, uh, but it is the Lord's table, and it is an ordinance of the church given by Jesus. Uh, to the church, Jesus gave the keys of the kingdom in Matthew 16 and 18 and in John 20, and so the church is called to uh, guard the table from those who are not walking in repentance. Thus, to all those who, who are walking in true repentance, we invite you to come and receive this meal with us and find ease and refreshment and strength for your souls. For those of you coming forward, if you want to stand with me as we say the Apostles' Creed together, as a summary of our faith, as the message that this meal proclaims to us. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven 
and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. For those of you coming forward, if you would come down this aisle to my left here, and the communion servers will be to your right, you can tear off a piece of the bread, take the cup, and go back to your seat and just sit down and, and wait for further instruction. We're all going to receive these, uh, the elements together as an expression that this meal is indeed a family meal that celebrates our communion that we have with one another. But before we all come forward, I'd like to pray together. The prayer will be on the screen so that you can pray uh, all of the underlying portions with me. Let's pray together. Send your Holy Spirit upon us, we pray, that the sharing of the bread that we break and the cup that we bless may be for us the communion of the body and blood of Christ. Grant that being joined together in him, we may attain to the unity of the faith and grow up in all things into Christ our Lord. And as this grain has been gathered from many fields into one loaf, and these grapes from many hills into one cup. Grant, O Lord, that your whole church may soon be gathered from the ends of the earth into your kingdom. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The communion service will come forward, please. the blue. 